Ezra chapter 1. We will also end up in Nehemiah a little bit later, the book right after that. Um, The reason for that, if you didn't know, is that Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book called Ezra and Nehemiah, and then somewhere along the way, somebody decided it'd be easier to read if they split it in two. And so it's actually one story. And so we'll be in both today, but we're going to start out in Ezra chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath seats. If you don't own a Bible, man, we would absolutely love to fix that. We could could give you one of those physical ones today. Um, The reason why we would send you home with the Bible is pretty simple. Uh, God uses his word to reveal himself to us. He uses it for all, other, all these other really valuable, wonderful things too. Uh, but the, the main reason he gives us the scriptures is to, to show us who he is so that we may know him. God wants you to know him. We want you to know him. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we can fix that this morning. Ezra chapter 1. We are in, we've spent most of this year in a series that we're calling the story of God. And the, the, the premise for this series isn't that complicated at all. Uh, we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Like, the whole stinking thing. Uh, and, but when you start to flesh out the, the, the reality of what that actually means, people start to scatter off from there. Because right? most people would agree that, that the Bible's about Jesus. Yeah, but we're not just talking about the New Testament. We're not just talking about the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Those are valuable and God's given, it to, given them to us as a gift. But uh, we believe that the whole Bible's about Jesus. Even, even the stories that we would say are about other folks, like Adam and Samson and Isaiah, like... When you read their stories correctly, you walk away from their stories, not impressed with how, not how impressed Isaiah is, but, with, uh, but being more impressed with how awesome Jesus is. Uh, and, and we're seeing and savoring the Jesus over the story of Isaiah. And so uh, that's what we've been working on all year long. We've been fleshing out this thesis, kind of proving our work here, by taking a slow walk through the major characters of the Old Testament and asking the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful, I think, story of God? But that's a complicated question to ask, and so we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions. And seeing how this is the second to last character we're going to look at, I'm assuming you know what these questions are by now. How is the person raised up? What's number two? What makes this person a seemingly bad choice? A seemingly bad choice. All right. Number three, what did God do to redeem them? And number four, how does their story preach God's gospel? If we answer these four questions faithfully, we position and posture ourselves in such a way that the bigger, larger story of God question is actually quite simple to answer. So y'all ready to get into it this morning? Who's our character? Ezra. Yeah, that, that guy, because most of y'all know a ton about Ezra, right? All right, let's round out his profile. A great preacher, a cultural reformer, a missing puzzle piece. You ready to get into it? It's question number one. How was Ezra raised up? Well, first let me set the stage for you a little bit. Uh, we spoke last week about Jeremiah, right? Uh, and Jeremiah had this promise from God that he was supposed to deliver to God's people that if they failed to repent, if the nation of Judah failed to repent, that God would judge them for their sin and destroy them. And that's exactly what happened. Judah fails to repent. They, they, they scoff at the idea and God raises up the Babylonian Empire to come in and wipe them out. Super fun children's bedtime story, right? Babylon demolishes the city, including the temple. They carry off the vast majority of people in the city to be captives in the faraway land of Babylon. Over the last few weeks, we've, um, we've, 
looked at the, the stories of Jeremiah and Daniel. And, uh, and Jeremiah and Daniel's stories both are happening within this time period. And they describe what's going on during this time. And, and if we had more weeks in the calendar, we could actually uh, look at some other folks too. Uh, many of y'all have heard of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel. He's, he's, his story plays out during the same time period. But we had to wrap this up for Christmas because we got to talk about somebody special at Christmas, right? So we didn't have enough time to cover Ezekiel. But we could have just as easily looked at Ezekiel. We just couldn't squeeze it in. But by this point in the story, God's people have been in captivity in Babylon for at least 50 years. There's some debate over whether it's 50 by this point or 65 by this point or somewhere in between. But it's been at least 50 years since they've been carted off into slavery. And now after 50 plus years, it would be easy to think that God is somehow not interested in getting them back home, right? Like if you're in the middle of this story, how are you feeling about the circumstances? Is God ever going to come back? Is God ever going to get us through? And you, you'd be inclined to think that maybe God wasn't even capable of getting you back home. Except for two major things that we need to point out. One is that God put them there on purpose, right? It's a nice little time out to go think about what they've done. So he's the one that sent them into captivity. It wasn't the Babylonian Empire. But two, and I think more importantly, is that one of the major themes of all the writers during this time period, whether you're looking at Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or the guys coming after them, that one of the major themes of the writers during this time period is that God is sovereign and Lord over all nations and all kings, not just the Jews. That he is ruling over and sovereign over even every pagan nation and empire. And the common drumbeat of Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, if you read those stories on your own, is that God is the one who builds up and God is the one who tears down. God is the one who puts kings on their thrones and God is the one who is authoring the arc of human history. Not guys like Nebuchadnezzar or Darius the Great or Cyrus the Great or Artaxerxes or whoever you want to put in that blank. God is the one in charge. And it's during this time period, the, the writings of Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and the guys following them, that we see the rise and fall of some of the greatest empires in human history. The, the Assyrians give way to the Babylonians, who give way to the Medes, who give way to the Persians. All of this is playing out during this time period in history. And the message is clear from, the, from the, the Bible writers, the biblical writers who are living in this time period, is that the message is that God is the one who is in charge, not Cyrus. God is the one who's in charge, not Artaxerxes or Nebuchadnezzar. And I can prove that when we look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read that together. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So this is something that Jeremiah promised would happen before this all happened. In order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, comma, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of, the, of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king who brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. All right, so... Cyrus the Great of Persia has an idea, guys. And what's his idea? He's going to let all of God's people go home. God moves Cyrus to send his people home. But you know what? Let's just keep calling him Cyrus the Great, right? Isn't he so smart and thoughtful and benevolent? God moves Cyrus to just decide one day, you know what, I'm going to send all those Jewish exiles home. Oh yeah, also, and I want you to rebuild my temple. Did you catch that in the text? He's charged me to rebuild him a temple in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, and return all my golden vessels that you took. Yeah, Cyrus isn't in charge here, is he? Not even close, but for posterity's sake, let's just go ahead and just keep calling him Cyrus the Great. God is the one in charge here. The message is clear. God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, over empires and emperors. God is in charge. And God moves Cyrus here in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the great of Persia, to begin sending his people home. And so the first wave of exiles under a guy named Zerubbabel as their leader return home and begin rebuilding Jerusalem on Cyrus's dime. That's how Ezra's story starts out. Now there's some pushback. Like, like there's people who have been occupying the land in the time period that the exiles have been removed from the land. Like it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not exactly low value real estate. And so people moved in. And so when the Israelites come back, they're not exactly excited that the Israelites are there and rebuilding the city. And so they stir up some problems. And so some local politics slows the process down, which is I'm sure a story you've never heard before. But eventually, the temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C. What was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians is rebuilt by the people that Cyrus sends and funds. And so things are starting to look pretty good, right? I mean, you've got this wave of people who've come home and they've rebuilt the temple. and I mean, things are starting to click, right? But we also haven't mentioned Ezra yet. And to do that, we need to fast forward another 58 years. So 58 years after all of this happens, after the building of the temple, Ezra chapter 6 ends with Zerubbabel leading the people to celebrate the Passover again for the first time in years. 
I mean, you don't celebrate the Passover when you don't have the temple. You don't celebrate the Passover when you've been removed from your land. You don't celebrate the Passover when you're not actually listening to God's word. And so Zerubbabel leads the people to celebrate the Passover again. So there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. But there's also, if you read the story for yourself, a noticeable ignorance of God's word. Like they don't know, they don't actually know what it is they're doing. And that's the context that Ezra steps onto the scene and Chapter 7, look at that with me. We don't see Ezra in Ezra until chapter 7, and this is where it happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this, after the, they celebrated the Passover, but not really understanding what it was they were celebrating. Now, after this, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meraoth. I don't know, son of Zeriah, son of Uzi, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. People are important, guys. That's why we read the genealogies around here. But moving on. Verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he had asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, of the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. It's a long walk. And for the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Quote, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel of their, or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries in, about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with, all, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 17, with this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given for you uh, for the service of the house of your God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem and whatever else you required for the house of your God which it fail, uh, falls to you to provide you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. That's the place he's going. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver. That's a lot of silver. hundred cores of wheat. That's a lot of wheat. A hundred baths of wine. A hundred baths of oil. And salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the house, uh, by the God of heaven, excuse me, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. 
Verse 24, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll or in, on anyone of the priests, the Levites, the singers, or the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of, the house of, of this house of God. Verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the peoples in the province beyond the river, all such as you know... All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and, on the, law of, and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. And then 27 starts with Ezra commenting on this letter. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me this, his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Hey guys, Ezra is given the farm. Is there anything that's not just outright handed to him right here? I mean, doesn't this kind of sound like the end of a really sappy movie where all the things come magically together at the end, like in a way that's just beyond belief? Like, doesn't it seem too good to be true? You ever watch a movie like that? It's like, no, that's not how life works. (laughs) All the pieces come together. Hey, you need this? We got this. You need that? We got three of those. Take all of them. That's exactly what happens. God's people are in desperate need of someone to teach them God's law. And Ezra goes, da-da-da-da, I'm here. We're told a couple of things about Ezra. One, that Ezra is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He's literally an expert in God's law. Just hanging out in Babylon. Just hanging out near the court of King Cyrus. King Artaxerxes. He's literally an expert in God's law. He knows it better, backwards and inside out, than everyone else. And this is key. He can teach it better than everybody else. Those two skill sets don't always exist in the same person. He knows God's law inside and out. He can teach it better than everyone else. We also, secondly, learned a lot about Ezra's Family line. We uh, worked hard to pronounce every single one of those names in that genealogy. We got his Ancestry.com report if you want to go that route. Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. Now, each of those names is important, and all those names together in a big sandwich feels complicated, but that list of people is important because of the name it ended on. What name did it end on? Ezra can trace his family line back through Aaron. Who's Aaron? Uh, Not the brother of Moses. He is the brother of Moses, but that's not the thing he's famous for. Who was Aaron? He was the first high priest. It's like saying Jeb Bush was important because his brother was president. He was also a governor, right? He had his own job. Aaron was the first high priest. And so Ezra, as a Levite, as somebody who can trace his line back to Aaron, sees the need for some solid Bible teaching down in Judah and he wants to do something about it. He says, I can fix that. And so he asks permission to go home and Artaxerxes goes, yep, let me give you some stuff to take with you. Ezra is given salary. 
expenses for the journey, funds and supplies for the sacrifices, armed protection in his travels. He is given everything. He's also told that if anything else comes up that you need, just ask. Sends notes on to the treasurers before him. Hey, if this guy comes looking for something, give him what he wants. And so Ezra goes home. 81 years after Cyrus's original decree, Ezra goes home and he spends the rest of his life teaching God's word to God's people. That is how Ezra is risen up. It's a happily ever after, right? But we also have a few more questions to answer this morning. First among them is what made Ezra a seemingly bad choice. What made Ezra a seemingly bad choice to be a part of God's great redemption story? And the answer, just like several other characters that we've looked at throughout the course of the series, is that we don't really know of anything. Like, there's no, there's no major sin listed out about Ezra that we know of. I mean, we've talked about murderers, we've talked about liars, we've talked about thieves, we've talked about tricksters, we've talked about you fill in the blank. Ezra doesn't seem to have any junk for us to learn about. Now, we've, we've looked at Daniel, and we've looked at Isaiah, and those are guys that don't seem to have a lot of junk either. And so what conclusion did we come with on them? That they were still sinners because, well, everybody's a sinner, right? That they still need the grace of God. And but listen, there's probably a specific reason and we don't see any of Ezra's junk. And that's that the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember how I told you there used to be one book? The writer of Ezra and Nehemiah is probably the same person who wrote Chronicles. So what's Chronicles? Well, Chronicles is a retelling, a retelling of the history of Israel and Judah after they've come back from the Babylonian exile. And so what is their purpose in retelling the history after the exile? It's encouragement, right? It's meant to spur them on, to get them excited about the days ahead. It's meant to get them excited about what God has done and who he is. It's not, they're not trying to hide anything. Chronicles intentionally leaves out most of the bad parts of Israel's history. Not because they're trying to hide anything, but because those are recorded for us in the original histories of Samuel and Kings. But Chronicles is built out, written for the explicit purpose of exciting the heart of God's people for this new day. And we think... But Ezra and Nehemiah was written by the same person. Notably, most notably, because the very first paragraph that we read in Ezra chapter 1 is literally almost verbatim the exact same paragraph that ends 2 Chronicles. Like there's only like four words that are different in a whole paragraph. So we think that the writer of Chronicles also wrote the, the histories Ezra and Nehemiah, which is, if you didn't know, Ezra and Nehemiah are history. That's why you found it in the middle of the Old Testament rather than towards the end, even though this is happening at the very end, timeline-wise. Like I said a moment ago, Ezra and Nehemiah is meant to encourage, not to hide anything, but to spur on, to get people excited about what God is Doing So a lack of detail about Ezra's sin and failures isn't because Ezra doesn't have any, but because the author has a specific purpose in their writing, right? But Ezra is similar to Daniel in another way. We don't see any junk, but we do see him confess the sins of his people. Look with me real briefly at Ezra 10. Just the first part of verse 1. 
Well, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Now, there's a reason that there's ellipses up there. This, this verse, even in verse 1, goes on quickly to, to talk about what the writer is wanting to talk about in verse 10. So this is, or chapter 10, this is only a brief little snapshot before they get into what they actually want to talk about. But, but listen, even still, we see something in these few words about the character of Ezra, don't we? He's identifying himself with his people. It, he is moved by the sin that exists among the people he's called to lead. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't go before God and say, like, we fix these people. No, he weeps and he casts himself down, right? He puts himself in the category of the sinful people. He's burdened by this. And so, so we're never told about any specific sin in Ezra. But Ezra would certainly never claim sinfulness or sinlessness for himself. He would never go there. No, he, he's just as guilty as everybody else in his mind. But, but what about the third question for the morning? How do we answer the third question if we don't know anything, right? Like, how do we answer the how did God redeem Ezra question if we don't know anything about Ezra's sin? Well, in another sense, we do know Ezra's sin. We do know Ezra's sin. We know that the Bible teaches that Ezra, and just like you and me and anybody else that we can pick out of the herd, that, that Ezra is by default someone who is separated from God because of uh, the bent in his heart to reject God's lordship over him. That, that fleshes itself out for every different one of us in a thousand different ways on a daily best, basis. But that's the root. That we reject God's kingship and we reject God's lordship and we reject God's control and authority over our lives and we flesh out that rejection in countless uh, unexplainable ways. But that's always the root. And we know that that's true for Ezra because well, outside of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, that's true for me. It's true for you. And so when we talk about redemption in here we need to remember that we're talking about something much, much deeper than fixing one little problem. We're talking about something much, much deeper than, than realigning the way we see one little thing. The reality that God would use us at all. That he would claim us as his own. He would reconcile to us to himself and choose to use us for his purposes. Because that's a major redemptive work, Right? God is doing something big because neither you nor I nor Ezra deserve anything from God but his righteous wrath. And yet, he loves us, right? And he makes himself known to us and he folds us into his great plan and he uses us. This is a mighty redemptive work. And so let me show you how God chose to use Ezra. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. God chose to use Ezra in a very, very big way. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you weren't listening earlier, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be a single book, so the story has moved on considerably, but we're still in the same story. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, we're told this, And all the people gathered as one man to the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. 
And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. It's the first pulpit, guys. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, uh, Shema, Ananias, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah, I think. And on the right hand, uh, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shebethai, Hodiah, Mesa, the double vowels get me every time, Kalidim, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to, to send portions to, and to make great rejoicing. <laughs> I love this part. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They want more and more of it. They've tasted something good and they're insatiable. Verse 14, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and they, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written verse 16 so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day the people of Israel had not done so And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So how did God use Ezra in a big way? God used Ezra to reestablish the centrality of his word among his people. Nothing in their culture was shaped by God's word until Ezra came in and said, this is what God's word says. And they're like, okay, we should do that. Ezra is used by God to reestablish the centrality of God's word among God's people. A people that had largely been assimilated into Babylonian and Assyrian and Persian cultures. God changes them. He uses Ezra to reform them. He uses Ezra and Ezra's incredible gift of teaching to put a love for God's word 
in the heart of God's people. That is no small task. And it eventually gets to the point where they gather regularly to hear it. They ask for more and more of it, and they rejoice when they understand it. They even start celebrating the feasts again. Guys, God's people had returned home. They may have been living in the land, but God's people had finally returned home. They were now being identified by the God they were supposed to be following. Yay, another happy ending. Except for one thing. There are several massive chunks of Ezra and Nehemiah that we haven't read. Because not all of it's very pretty. Those sections don't paint a pretty picture of the happily ever after. And so that's, that's sadly where we need to answer question number four this morning. How is the gospel preached through Ezra? The answer is that the people were really no closer to God than they were before the exile. Returning to the promised land, rebuilding the temple, even their newfound love for the Bible are all really good things. That's worthy of celebrating, but none of those things are the primary thing. It's entirely possible to, to, to rebuild the temple and to, uh, to live in the land and to say we value the scriptures but not actually know the God that's speaking them to us. Both Ezra and Nehemiah, in their sections of the story, if you go read it for yourself later, the end of their sections of the story by telling us about large groups of the people who refused to repent over simple things. They just weren't having it. So while there was a lot of really good stuff that did happen, there seems to also be a very, very big missing puzzle piece. Something is not all the way whole yet. You remember last week when we were talking about Jeremiah and we made the promise that God was going to give us a new heart? That he was going to give us a heart of flesh instead of stone with the law written upon it so that we would know it internally and not have to be forced upon us from the outside. Hey, I don't think that promise has been fulfilled yet. At least not in Ezra's day. At least not in Ezra's day. See, you don't need a new heart to rebuild a temple. Apparently you just need some go-getters and some king's money. You just need some cash from a faraway king. Ezra is an amazing Bible teacher, but we need more than a great preacher, don't we? We need the law to be written upon our hearts. We need to be changed by his word from the inside rather than from the outside. The gospel is preached most powerfully through Ezra by showing us that our man-made effort, even our white-knuckled, bootstrap-pulling, self-made resolve will not be Enough to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful human heart. That's the message of Ezra. That despite all the good things, the story isn't over yet. We're not to happily ever after because the problem hasn't actually been resolved. Doesn't matter how type A you are, you can build and rebuild the sacred spaces and you can establish and reestablish the traditions and you can listen to as many great sermons as you want, but without that heart reborn, then you and I are no better than the Jews post-exile. Doing some good things, but unmoved. You may do some good things here and you may 
fail to do some, some decent good things over there, but the story is always the same. You're far from God. But the new heart has been promised. We may not be to the happily ever after right now, but one has been promised to us. Jesus, the eternal Son and eternal Word of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. That changes things, church. For Ezra and his contemporaries, he was still a few centuries off. But looking back, we get to celebrate that every Christmas. That God looked down on us. They looked down on our sin. They looked down on our separation. They looked down on our complete inability to solve the problem. And he came to bridge the gap. And it's wild that Jesus is here, that he pays the debt of our sins on the cross. He gives us that new heart that can actually know him and love him and pursue him. Ezra was a great teacher, but we need the word himself. Ezra was a great teacher of the word, but we need the word, capital W, himself. Which means, church, we put in the work to answer our big story God question, haven't we? One overarching theme to this series, God God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. So today we learn that God raised up Ezra to be the shadow of a far more perfect Ezra to come in Jesus. God was not content to leave us in our sin. So no matter how great a preacher, outside application will never be enough to get the job done. And so he came himself. No more sending, I'm coming on my own. The story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. What is he doing? He's redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God, church. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And you do that best by pressing into his word. Consider starting with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. God has given it to us so that we may know him. So go find him there. That's the point of why he gave it to us. So go chase. We can take another step. Maybe Ezra's story is a lot like yours. You've got really good spiritual things going on around you and you're busy with a bunch of stuff that's rightly seen as valuable, but the primary responsibility of pressing into God himself has been left on the back burner. It won't end well. It won't end well. So hear me carefully. If the temple never, ever got rebuilt, like just hypothetically think through the history for a second. If the temple had never been rebuilt and the wall never got rebuilt, but Ezra, and, and let's, like, if none of those things happened and Ezra was just kind of a mediocre, sad preacher like other people I know. If Ezra was just kind of mediocre at that stuff. But, but God's people pressed in deeply. But God's people were changed at a core level by him. Would that have been the happily ever after we were hoping for? I think so. Man, I I think so. Slow down, embrace the angst, and press in deeply. Today's a good day to repent.
We press in. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. Jesus came to bridge the gap between God and man. You're reconciled to him through his work on the cross by repenting and coming to him. Religious actions will not be enough. You need Jesus. I'd love to introduce you today. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want to take that next step of walking in the grace that's offered to you, you come talk to me. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who saves in spite of us. Thank you for being the God who frankly, is not impressed with all the religious things that we have encircling us. We can build buildings and we can do good things and we can even preach a good sermon once in a while, but at the end of the day, we need you. And that's exactly what you've promised to those who pursue you. You want to give us yourself. Those those other things, those periphery things are not bad. They can be really valuable. They can help us do the things that you've called us to do, but they are a waste of time if we don't have you. God, call us to yourself this morning. In the midst of an overcrowded, wrongly focused Christmas season, call us to yourself. God, for those in here who don't, know you, would you awaken hearts to know you this morning? Would you give us a sense that you are bigger and truer and sweeter than any other thing in this world we could chase after? You are, but we're blind to it. We need you to open our eyes. So do that today. Open people's eyes. You are good. In your good name we pray.